Part three, chapter one of Life and Lillian Gish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolyn Lilliard. Life and Lillian Gish by Albert Bigelow Payne. Part three, chapter one, Italy. Life always a serious matter to Lillian, became more so. Mrs. Gish underwent a major operation, was in grave danger. Lillian, at work on the set in Mamaroneck, was likely at any moment to be summoned to the Presbyterian Hospital in New York. When the patient was able to be moved, they brought her by ambulance to a house they had taken in New Rochelle, later to an apartment on Park Avenue, three moves within a year seeking comfort for the sufferer spring was saddened by the death of victor mariel who had done so much for her voice his funeral services were held in new york lillian attended with his widow madame de grassac and there met madame calvé who had been his pupil in the carriage on the way to the grave madame calvé told the others how she had been in boston knowing nothing of his danger. Suddenly she had felt that something was wrong with him. The feeling was so strong that she had taken the train for New York. He was dead when she arrived. A few weeks after the funeral, Calvé asked Madame du Grassac and Lillian to come to her apartment, a beautiful place in the Hotel des Artistes on Central Park. She sang for them. Her voice was so enormous that it seemed as if it might burst the walls. She said that Victor Morel's training had made it what it was. She danced for them, the peasant dances, until the people downstairs sent up word that their chandeliers were about to come down. She was so eager to divert the little widow. Too eager for her own good, she danced so hard that night and so long that next day she could not start on her tour. Lillian was unsettled as to what she should do. Again, Griffith agreed with her that she should be making more money, and perhaps it did not seem to either of them that any picture they could do together would make enough for both. He was an extravagant producer, and her financial obligations had become very heavy. In March, she wrote, My next picture, if all goes well, will be made by myself, so if it makes any money, I may get some of it. She had been negotiating with the Tiffany Company, considering an offer of $3,500 a week to make four or five pictures a year when her representative, Frederick Newman, was approached by the president of a new producing company, a meeting which marked the beginning of an episode wholly different from anything she had known. Her old fellow player, Dick Barthelmus was already with the new company, and had produced Tolerable David, directed by Henry King, a success of which all his friends were proud. Lillian had not been much impressed by the Tiffany offer, mainly for the reason that they seemed to be doing circus pictures, and she did not fancy the idea of being cast for something with a slack wire or a trapeze in it. She agreed with Newman to meet the chief official of the new company, and a few days later, lunching at the Ritz, the three discussed picture possibilities and terms. The new producer was a convincing talker. 
Lillian was favorably impressed, especially as he agreed to take Dorothy, who would play with Barthelmas in two pictures, with Lillian in two pictures, after which she would be given a contract of her own. Lillian's contract, which she signed that summer, 1922, gave her $1,250 a week, and it added 15% after a certain amount had been earned. She thought this was a highly satisfactory arrangement, as it made her returns depend largely upon the quality and success of the pictures. Recently, she said, All that summer I was looking for material for my first picture. We had two women read all the heap of things submitted. Whenever they found something they thought Dick or I might use, we read it. I nearly read my eyes out. One of the women, Lily Hayward, one day brought me Marion Crawford's white sister. It struck me immediately as good picture material. Ever since my winter at the Ursuline School in St. Louis, I had thought of the nuns as earnest women, hard-working and kindly. My memory of them was an affectionate one, romantic. There had been a time when I fancied I might have a vocation for the veil. The cloister has appealed to so many who later became actresses. I have regretted sometimes that I did not follow that early inclination. There was another special reason why the book appealed to me as picture material. I saw a chance to get in a scene showing the ceremony of taking the veil, a scene not really in the book at all. She met with plenty of opposition. Everybody, it seemed, objected to the story on the ground that it was a religious picture, the one thing motion pictures would be wise to let alone. Everybody but Griffith, in whose studio she made some tests. Griffith thought it a beautiful story. Her producer also believed in it because, as he said, he had faith in her judgment. Henry King, who had directed Barthelmas, was not enthusiastic at first, but warmed to the prospect of a trip to Italy. By October, they were ready to go. All the players engaged except the leading man. James Abbey, a photographer, gave up a good business in New York to become their still man and to assist in other ways. Abbey was valuable. One morning, quite excitedly, he called up Lillian, saying he believed he had found a man for the lead. His name, he said, was Ronald Coleman, playing with Henry Miller and Ruth Chatterton in La Tendresse. They arranged to have a test made in Abby's studio that same afternoon. Lillian went down. King directed the test. All privately agreed that Coleman was what they wanted. Next morning, when they saw the tests, they were sure of it. Coleman declared himself willing to go, and everybody voted, yes, if we can get him. Henry Miller, when he learned the situation, generously agreed to release him from his part, which, though not the lead, was important. This was not only to oblige them, but to give Coleman the opportunity he wanted. It was on Thursday morning that they saw the tests. On Saturday of the same week, they sailed, 24 of them, on a Fabre line steamer bound for Naples. It was raining when we left Brooklyn, Lillian remembers, and very dismal and disheartening especially as I was leaving Mother and Dorothy behind, Mother being still in the Catskills. Dorothy and Mary Pickford came with me to the ship, a great comfort. It was hardly a lazy voyage. 
Coleman knew nothing about playing before the camera. Director King rehearsed him in his parts with Lillian, and with the whole company as soon as they got their sea legs. The Providence has a little after-deck, which the captain ordered enclosed in canvas for their use. It was a very busy place during several hours of every day. The Providence was a good ship, and the southern route is nearly always delightful. It was never too cold to rehearse, and afterwards one could sit drowsily in a deck chair and pretend to read, or lean over the side looking at the bluest of blue water, or watching bits of skimming silver that were flying fish, and the big, black, graceful bodies that were porpoises. One never ought to cross by that friendless northern route. On the ship with them, by great good luck, was Monsignor Bonzano, high prelate to the church, then on his way to Rome to be made a cardinal. Lillian quickly became acquainted with him. They put in much of their spare time discussing the picture she was to make, ways and means for its accomplishment. It was easy to realize that the churchman was one to the idea when he mentally associated the face before him with the part of the white sister. And Lillian, regarding Bonzano, was infinitely impressed. His personality, his attainments, his human understanding, went far beyond anything she had ever known. I think he had the most beautiful face I have ever seen. He had traveled in many countries and lived a long time in China. He spoke Chinese and any number of other languages and dialects. He had an understanding of all races. It was destiny that he should have been on that boat. Without him, we could hardly have made our picture. We were between the church and the fascisti. Through him, later, the doors of all Catholic institutions were open to us. When we stopped at Palermo, he took us through the great church where the mosaics are. He had us shown the treasure and the jeweled robes. It was early November in Palermo, and very lovely. We landed at Naples. Italy! All the way to Rome, Lillian looked out the window. She was tired, but no matter. It was evening. There was a mist on the field. The vines trailing from tree to tree, Italian fashion, were like wonderful great spider webs. She would never forget that vision. It was eleven when they reached Rome. Rooms had been engaged at two hotels, the Excelsior and the Majestic. Lillian and her companion, Mrs. Marie Cratch of Massillon, were at the former. Very tired, they went promptly to bed. Then it seemed that almost immediately they were awakened by an astonishing sound, the bells of Rome. Never in her life had she heard anything like that. Why, they were right in the room. In Rome, they found a small studio, sunlight and four little Klieg lights when they needed at least fifty possibly a hundred they ordered them from germany but did not sit down to wait for them lillian rehearsed the company while director king looked for locations now and again she visited convents forty or more to decide what order to use she finally chose the order of lourdes we also began building our sets lillian remembering we used the Villa d'Esti as the convent, and built all the interiors, the chapel, etc. We built the most beautiful interiors I had ever seen. 
our library walls were of solid carved wood so beautiful that we wanted to put walls around them and live in them i think no other moving picture sets were ever as beautiful as those we built in rome and florence this had to be so because they were to match up with a real hall or corridor construction was far cheaper than in america but that was not all oh by no means we got there a feeling that it is impossible to get here the workmen had a love for what they were doing and expressed it in the carving or whatever the work was so many of the critics had likened her acting to that of Doucet, yet she had never seen Doucet, hardly expected to now she was to have her chance however soon after her arrival in rome Doucet was given an engagement at the constanta theater i gave a party for the occasion mr king and his wife mrs cratch and myself the play was ghosts you may remember gordon craig once designed scenery for it especially for her isadora duncan tells of it in her life it saddened me to find the house not more than half filled i was told that this was not unusual in italy where the young fresh actress is always the favorite over one who has seen her best days she fascinated me i could not get enough of her and then at the end a single white wreath the flowers beginning to droop was handed over the footlights it was like a funeral offering every night while she was there i saw her and through a mutual friend we exchanged affectionate messages i was to have called on her but then i heard that she was ill and i said they must not let me come a year later during her last visit to america when she died in pittsburgh i saw her in new york it was in the lady from the sea and they gave her an opening night at the metropolitan opera house it was a great triumph it made up i thought for her neglect at home i have never seen any theatre so packed as that was every seat every standing space morris guest had floored over the orchestra pit and placed chairs there i was very busy and did not know that i could attend when i found i could get away i telephoned to mr guest and asked him if he could possibly get me in anywhere in the wings anywhere he said that he would take care of me and when i got there i found that he had placed a chair in front on the floor he had built over the orchestra so i got to see her at that close range long after in pittsburgh where i was playing in vanya a newspaper woman mrs perry told me that if anyone ever died of humiliation Doucet did her life had known so many heartbreaks i have a very precious souvenir when Doucet died the king of italy sent a wreath of white roses to be laid on her casket john reagan a ship news reporter one of my good friends obtained a bud from it put it into a small italian box of carved wood with a little botticelli reproduction the three graces on the cover and sent it to me it is one of my priceless possessions it always stays on a little table at the head of my bed lillian's early weeks in rome remain among her happiest memories 
the little girl who once had been dragged through a sordid succession of one-night stands with such interest as smoky towns and sodden fields could provide was having her innings at last they visited the pincio drove out the appian way and saw the coliseum by moonlight what a night it was there was music all about at one place someone was playing a violin farther along someone was singing and the churches she tried to visit them all there are said to be three hundred and sixty-five churches in rome and if one makes a wish on one's first visit it is almost sure to be granted she made wishes all over rome and left candles burning for her mother's health it was not very long after their arrival that the grand ceremony where monsignor bonzano and others were made cardinals took place at the vatican all the players were asked to attend and were much excited they had to rise at five thirty to be there on time the hour set for the ceremony was six thirty ladies to be in black high-necked dresses black veils over the head not face men in full evening dress long coats white ties the guards were costumed in the dress designed by raphael the ambassadors all in the most gorgeous array lillian thought them very handsome chosen no doubt for their physical appearance two actors mr charles lane who played the part of lillian's father and mr barney sherry monsignor in the picture were so distinguished-looking so imposing with their white hair and fine faces and stately figures that they were mistaken for ambassadors and ushered into the room where the ceremony took place the pope came in a golden chair carried by twenty-four men accompanied by the sistine choir the gorgeous ambassadors and the scarlet and ermine-clad cardinals on christmas eve she went with mrs cratch to midnight mass that was beautiful too and very strange so many things in the church some of the people had brought their dogs or cats even a goat two young people were making love leaving the glory of the great altar for the street was to go to the other extreme a little way along was a stable looking in they saw a mother leaning against a donkey nursing her baby it might have been the manger at bethlehem the lights came from germany but there was still trouble all rome could not supply enough juice to run them mamaranek over again eventually an engine was brought from the civita vecchia they had expected to finish the white sister in three months at the longest it would take double that time or more end of part three chapter one